It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here we go again then with another podcast. Welcome to Full Throttle from Eurosport. And as we move this week into September, we also move into a very busy time for the superbike racing community. The next five weekends back to back, we will be on Eurosport and the Eurosport app with all of the action from the Bennett's British Superbike Championship and indeed the Motul FIM Superbike World Championship starting with this weekend. Snetterton for BSB and Magni Kaur for Worlds. Greg Haynes with you and let's just go through a little bit of the news first of all before we get into this podcast. But so much coming up. We've got Mick Shanley joining us, crew chief for Luca Myers at Pachetti Kawasaki and World Superbikes. Mick's going to be talking about their season so far. And also from a technical point of view, just why the World Superbike Championship is so close at the moment with Jonathan Ray and Toprak Razgatioglu level pegging at the top of the championship. We'll have an update on MotoGP from our very own James Tozend, who was there broadcasting over the weekend. So all of the latest from MotoGP. And we'll also catch up with BSB championship leader, Jason O'Halloran from McCams Yamaha ahead of Snetterton. But first of all, the news, and we have to start with the best breaking news we've had for some time. And this was on Monday this week, that Brad Jones has actually left hospital. The full statement went out on the British Superbike website. Brad Jones, iForce, Lloyd and Jones BMW, who sustained injuries following an accident during the opening Bennett's British Superbike Championship race at Brands Hatch on Saturday, the 24th of July, has now been discharged from King's College Hospital, London. Following detailed assessment by the medical team, he passed all markers required in order to be discharged. His recovery path, particularly with regards to neurological aspects, will be long and he will continue to receive intensive neurological and occupational rehabilitation therapy from home with private care. On behalf of the family, Brad's father, Tim Jones, wishes to sincerely thank all of the medical staff, marshals and all within the BSB community who have provided so much support. Further information will continue to be provided when available. So a positive update there. Brad Jones out of hospital. Clearly a long road to a full recovery ahead of him. But it is, I think, the best possible news we could hope for at this point in time. We send all our love from the full throttle team here at Eurosport to the whole of the Jones family with Brad having been discharged from hospital. 
News from the World Superbike Paddock, unsurprising, but uh, good to see that Michael Ruben Rinaldi has been retained by Aruba Ducati, of course, alongside Alvaro Bautista for 2022. Bautista making the move back from Honda to Ducati. Don't forget, Bradley Smith will also be with us on Eurosport this weekend. In a race situation, that is. He's doing a wild card in the Quattro Group British GP2 Championship at Snetterton. So watch out for Bradley Smith. The former MotoGP man, of course, on the Spirit Moto Corsa bike. He'll be there. That's going to be quite different for Bradley, I'm quite sure. And quick shout out as well to Jack Doohan, Mick Doohan's son. We mentioned him in the season uh, earlier on in the year. The Trident driver in the Formula 3 championship. We didn't get much racing at Spa for F1 over the weekend, but we did get, believe it or not, Three races for Formula 3. They got lucky with their weather, although there were some pretty horrendous conditions at times. But Jack Doohan won two of his three races. The young Australian now closing to, what is it as I work it out, 25 points. Just 25 points behind the Norwegian, Dennis Hauger, who leads that championship. So are we going to see Jack Doohan? Are we going to see a Doohan winning a title on four wheels this year? They've got three more races this weekend at Zamvoort and three scheduled at Circuit of the Americas. Hopefully that will happen later on in the year. So that's the news. Don't forget, free practice for World Superbike will be our first live action of the weekend. James Tozen and myself will be live in the commentary box for the Magni Core uh, first session from 9.25, 25 past nine in the morning, UK time on Friday. More from James Tozen later on in this show and from Jason O'Halloran as well. But let's just kick things off, first of all, with Mick Shanley, from the Pachetti World Superbike team. Mick, first of all, how are you? Because you've not been at a track for a while. It's been a strange old time. Lucas broke his wrist, of course, back at Assen, so the team missed Most, and then you missed Navarra for a very different reason. Yeah, good morning, Greg. It's, uh, yeah, strange. I'm excited to get back to Magni Corps. Um, obviously, Lucas's home race. So it's going to be a big big race meeting for us. But like you say, it's been a while since uh, I've been at a race meeting. So, yeah, looking forward to getting back to it. Now, the reason, of course, is COVID. And by the time we were on air, James Tozen and myself, and I know you had to unfortunately listen to us all weekends. So that must have been a bit strange for you. But you were already COVID negative, weren't you, by then? But you had been COVID positive. Did you actually have COVID then? Yeah, yeah. Um it was a little bit strange. Uh, we'd been away as a family just in the in the week before, and I felt, you know, basically all right. I had a, a little bit of a cold, um, but nothing that would normally set you back or stop you or anything. And it was only from a couple of comments from my wife from when she noticed different smells, and I couldn't smell anything. So um, just as a precaution, when we got back, I, I took a lateral flow test which came back positive and I was like, no, I think it's just come up because I've got a bit of a cold, you know, there's no way I've got COVID. Um, so yeah, I went and did the PCR test check and that came back positive. So, I mean, we worked out, you know, I probably had symptoms for maybe a week at that point. Um, so I should have been clear by the time I had to go to Navarra, obviously discussing with the team and Kawasaki and, um, just wanted to be safe because if I'd tested positive again by Wednesday, um, they were risking not having anybody there to to undertake sort of my role. So made the decision altogether that they'd have somebody there to to take my role. 
um, just in case and for me to focus on being a 100% clear and support as best as I could do from home. And what was that like? Because you were literally watching the races on Eurosport, weren't you, with us and listening to what we had to say about it. What was it like from that point of view? Did you actually notice things or learn things that you might not know when you're on the pit wall? But I guess it must be so frustrating to not actually be there. Yeah, yeah, it's really strange because you you're a bit detached from things. You know what's going on to an extent, and obviously you're in control of a lot of the bike settings. But what's physically happening at that moment in time is difficult to understand uh, unless you can tell that he's out on track with the live timing. So I had my yeah three screens set up: one with uh, Eurosport playing, one with uh, live timing and uh, my data screen as well so the team were emailing me data straight over into my dropbox and was picking that up oh wow wow so we were trying to keep as as live as possible and um, but you never know what's happening you know just at that time or his first person account when he comes into the pit box you, you're always getting things sort of second hand and um but then on the other side it it was interesting to sort of watch the tv footage with commentary as well because i don't normally do that until after the event uh and because you don't know really what's going on you're keeping an eye on live timing but i probably watch more uh tv footage uh and it was interesting to see just a few things with riding style and and things that i noticed probably a little bit more than what i would do when i'm just purely focusing on sector times and and pouring through data because I've got, you know, the latest data right there and then in front of me. So do you think there's an argument, jokes aside, for a team to actually employ somebody to sit at home and watch the races on the telly to maybe feed some of that info back on a regular basis? <laughs> I think um, I think it's something more, you know, like certainly with our team, Manuel, he'll be watching. Um, and it's that thing as well where you have the spotters on the side of the track there it's that sort of thing that they pick up more on. So yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I think it's it's definitely valuable. It has its place for sure. Well, Mick, as you know, the reason we're mostly chatting today is to just talk generally about the state of the championship because it is official. It's never been this close at this point of the season. It is absolutely a dead heat. Level pegging between Razgatioglu and Ray. Reading's only thirty-eight points behind. Three different manufacturers there at the top of the Manufacturers' Championship as well. Ducati leads Yamaha by three points and Kawasaki by nine points. And I didn't think I'd be saying Kawasaki were third in the Manufacturers' Championship at this point. From a technical point of view, why do you reckon it is so close now? I guess we've got Ray with his team, Toprak with his, Reading with his for now, uh, and they have been for a while, so there's consistency there. But I know Scott Smart and everyone at the FIM and Dorna have done a big job, haven't they, to get it as equal as possible but what has made it so close yeah it's it's a real tough exciting season um you know the sort of depth of bikes that are out there now and the depth of riders it it's tough to to get top 10 results um so like you say scott and donna have been working really close and and in essence you know you can you can buy all the hardware um, it has to be there, available by regulations. We're on a common ECU platform from the factory team to all the supported teams. Um, all the homologated parts that you have 
um, factory team have have to be available to all the other teams. Um, and I think, you know, you're always going to get the advantage with the factory teams and things, but there's a wealth of knowledge coming from from a lot of different parts now, which are all feeding into to the factory team. And it's, it's balanced really well. Um, I think with the Ducati being a newer bike, uh, the Yamaha's obviously progressed and it took a bit of a step from 2020, 21, when the newer model came. Um, you know, Kawasaki, unfortunately, is maybe they've caught up to where the Kawasaki is at the minute. And Johnny, as you can see, is having to ride really, really hard um, to just try and make that deficit. For sure, we've got a bit of a, a speed deficit in a straight line. So it'll be something that focusing hard on to try and see what we can do to to negate that disadvantage really but yeah there's so many people there in the mix the bikes are all all pretty even really apart from top speed wise uh, everything's got its advantages but it's great to see some fantastic racing really. and just going through the manufacturers almost one by one you are obviously a Kawasaki man with the Pachetti team I know the factory team were very upset about the fact they didn't get those extra revs this year uh, and as you just said Mick you can see the Kawasaki is down on top speed, isn't it? It's a pretty sizable gap. Do you think they should have had those extra revs this year? Yeah, I mean, it, it's easy to be biased. Um, I think, yeah, obviously, yeah. took a, a view of the sort of regulations with the homologation and, and made a production motorcycle that revved harder. Um, so, yeah, obviously went through testing and winter testing with that RPM limit in mind and different camshaft specification, different gearbox specification. And then when it came to the first round, we had to change on the Thursday before we went out on practice on Friday. So it was obviously a bit of a penalty at that time. Um, uh, really? So is that how late it was? I thought it was earlier. I thought they'd sort of known from the Barcelona test. So was it literally they got to Aragon and had to change things around at the last moment? Yeah, that was it. We had uh, we arrived in Aragon with um, a fifteen thousand one hundred RPM spec engines, and then on Thursday changed to fourteen six spec engines. Cool. So, so, did, so were you literally not informed until that moment, or what happened? I don't know the the full political mm. ins and outs with everything. Obviously, there was there was discussions going on, or um, but yeah, sort of for for us going out on track um that was it we were back to 14.6 from first practice on the friday wow wow okay no wonder they were so upset about it then um i suppose on the other side other manufacturers argue that it's always been a bit cheeky of kawasaki to re-homologate the bike every year anyway but then again they're not it's not illegal is it it's just a bit of a, a loophole in the regulations they're going to try and speed it up as much as they can and the organizers will try and peg them back again yeah yeah you know, times have changed a little bit. People used to do it quite a lot. Unless Ducati in the past came out with a lot of different um, incarnations, you know, with the 916 and 926 and the SPS yeah, yeah. and SP. And there was a lot of different things happen like that in the past. Um, but times changed uh, before, you know, if you look like back in the early 2000s, you sort of got them a decent model update after every two years. And then there was a full model revision every four years. But once the recession hit, I think all the manufacturers got together and 
it's now a lot longer um, for you to get any major model revision. Uh, so these smaller updates that you can do to try to keep competitive are quite important now. It's good, though, for the championship, isn't it? I think from a neutral point of view that the regulations are stable and make it equal. And I know it's, okay, more spec parks and, and you're very limited now as to what you can do. But from a neutral point of view, it's working, isn't it? Because the racing is very, very good and the championship's really close. Yeah, 100%. Um, I think that's a big key factor in in the results and the racing that we've got at the moment. We need to have, once you have stable regulations, you can kind of work towards towards them and get on a level when regulations change quite regularly then you know you'll always have the biggest budgets which will be able to maybe invest more into finding the limits of those regulations quickly or somebody will drop onto something quite quickly and they'll have a distinct advantage and it'll take others time to to catch up again but having that stable regulation you know allows everybody to come to that level and it's down down to how hard you can work on the track when you arrive there at the circuit find the best setting to get the best tire combination and you can tell you know weather conditions are playing such a part for which bike's strong on which tire in which track temperature and yeah you can get a different result from one day to the next yeah, that's changed the face of things, hasn't it, Mick? This X-Tire, the SCX, once Bautista and Rinaldi started using it last year, it was sort of unheard of, wasn't it, at that point? No one even thought of the fact that you might be able to use the X-Tire in the long races. But that has become a given now, hasn't it? It's really changed the face of the championship, actually. Yeah, it's something something that was um, less likely. We did it a couple of times in 2019. Ah, um, did you? Right. I did with uh, Loris uh, Baz. Right, so um, it actually, Maddie. so it perhaps wasn't Bautista and Ronaldo who tried it first. Maybe it was you. I think, it, to be honest, it was one of those things where it, you, one or two people would try it if the conditions were right, but it it was kind of a bit of a long shot, and you had to be confident. I think, um, yeah, definitely. You know, Ronaldo made a big uh, big jump when he won at Aragon you know, convincingly and being the only person yeah, to run yeah. the X. And it's certainly a thing that we look for now. Um, first, we need to understand if we've got a performance advantage from it because Kawasaki sometimes works really well with it, sometimes not. Um, so we try and work out if we've got an advantage with it. And then, you know, your next step is to find out what sort of durability you've got. Uh, and that's that's again dependent on track temperature. So you're always trying to find that window as to whether, yeah, one it works and at what temperature it works at, and then how long it's going to last. So it's definitely brought a new, interesting point into the whole whole event, really. And just to help us understand, mate, there's two SCX tires now, aren't there? You've got the standard one and then the five five seven, as it's known. And I'm sure JT and I will be talking about this again in the commentary over the weekend. If it's dry, of course, otherwise they won't be used at all. But what's the difference <laughs> between the standard SCX and the 557? Because that's the one, the 557 is the one that works with the Kawasaki's, isn't it? The other one doesn't tend to work so well. Yeah, it's um, the 557 is like the new development SCX, if you will. You know, if, if the 557 becomes 
kind of the preferred option for everybody that will then become the new standard SCX which will be available for all Pirelli customers throughout the world and this is the interesting thing that Pirelli will do um, you know to to sort of advance their product the stuff that we'll develop in world championship is available for everybody kind of the year after so um, it seems for us at the moment uh, with the 557 uh, a little bit more stable it's a little bit stiffer carcass however it's uh, is constructed but it just seems to give a little bit more stability under acceleration um, which for the Kawasaki seems to work quite well the other SCX has a little bit more edge grip um, but yeah stability under power isn't quite as, as good for us but for other manufacturers you know, it can be opposite. They prefer to have that extra edge grip uh, and the stability isn't so much an issue for them. And Mick, what's your take on the Honda situation? I'm keen to know from a technical point of view. We've heard a lot that it might just be testing is so limited now with only 10 private days available. Uh, practice time is very limited on race weekends as well. Some people have questioned the rider liner. We know that Batista's off now to Ducati again, ironically. And Michael Rubinaldi's just been confirmed there as well, by the way, for next year, um, as we expected. But what do you make of the Honda thing? Because it has been a bit of a disappointment, hasn't it? To put it mildly, we didn't expect HRC to not even be on the podium so far this year. What is going on there? Yeah, it's it's a really strange um, situation because there's no doubt in the, the budget, the financial aspect that they've got. Um, the technical ability, obviously, there's a lot of Japanese involved in the project now and a lot more HRC led than than when it was with Tenkata or or previously. So, um, yeah, it's strange. It, I don't know why. To me, it, it still looks like a little bit of a Bridgestone bike, um, mm. kind of a, a Suzuka-developed sort of project. Uh, but that's me looking from the outside. It looks kind of quite long and low uh, bike, which I think Pirelli doesn't really react to very well. Um, everybody else, other manufacturers, have kind of gone in a bit of a different direction. But it might just be visually when you look at it, and the bike's stunning. It, is, it looks like a MotoGP bike, you know, build quality and everything. Um, yeah, it's... Uh, it's disappointing not to have Honda at the front. It's good for us that they're kind of not there, obviously, me with my <laughs> Kawasaki hat on. Um, but for sure, I think if if they can just strike on the right formula with that bike, it'll be incredible because it, the engine is unbelievably fast. Um, yeah, and if they can just strike on the right formula to make the bike work, I think it'll be incredible. Yeah, I hope for my sake they do as well, because I've been saying and writing all year now and most of last year as well, Honda's coming, Honda's coming, and they're still not quite there, are they? It just feels like there's just something hasn't clicked, has it yet? But uh, I suppose yeah, it, it just shows like again... All the ingredients are there, just need yeah. to uh, mix it right. Yeah, it, it just seems... Um, I don't know, I suppose... What about the testing rules? What's your take on that? Is Is there enough testing at the moment? I suppose... You know, you don't want big um, manufacturers spending massive amounts of money and pulling further away from the private teams, do you? But it is quite limited testing now. Yeah, yeah. This is the thing. It's difficult to strike a balance. 
um, with it because for sure, you know, teams like, well, factory Kawasaki team and, and Yamaha and certainly Honda, um, they'll want to go testing as much as possible. Um, but that has a, a huge budget um, restraint. The half-day testing rule really is a bit silly because once you've invested all the money in taking everybody to a circuit and the bikes and the staff and all the infrastructure, um, you've already spent the bulk of the money. So you may as you may as well allow to test for a full day. It doesn't make any difference, really. Um, so I think probably that side of things will get changed, which will ease things a little bit. But it's people who say quite regularly, you know, if I have more testing than the privateer teams, will be able to catch up more and be on more of a level. But the thing is, it, it is very much budget related and privateer teams can't afford to go and do all the testing that the factory teams do. It, it's a huge expense um, to ship everybody about around Europe, uh, you know, logistically and uh, accommodation wise and staff costs and then the actual testing costs. Uh, so it is a it is a big cost. Um, it's difficult to balance. I think we've got quite a good um, sort of number of days really at the moment. Twelve days is all right, um, and I think if we start to get too many more, then yeah, it'll the season itself will become really busy. Um, and budgets it'll just separate things even further away from independent teams and that's the thing isn't it with the season starting so late this year you know we didn't start till the end of may did we in aragon had it been unlimited testing you would have had kawasaki racing team and hrc out there all over the place wouldn't you with test riders and all sorts of testing going on which is bad i think for the championship it would just open up that void even further wouldn't it so from that point of view i think it's worked well the other thing as well mick of course is COVID testing at the moment, you know, Paul Dennings talked about this a lot at Crescent this year. A ridiculous amount of money is being spent by teams on COVID testing for travelling away and then coming back into the UK in their case. I mean, it's a crazy situation, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's been a real a real sort of cost for so many teams. I mean, me personally, um, obviously there hasn't been a lot of um, cheap low-cost flights um, from the UK, no, exactly, with holiday restrictions and things, especially. And I live up in the north, um, so a lot of you things that go from Stansted and that aren't, you know, quite as convenient. So uh, a lot of my flights this year have been via KLM. Um, but I think when I put my expenses in for the first half of the year, because I book all my European flights and. Uh, yeah, all my PCR testing before I go away and then when I come home. But when I put my expenses in, my my PCR testing requirement was four times the cost of my flights for this year. Wow. Wow, that is absolutely ridiculous, isn't it? Um, this isn't taken away from you know the safety we need regarding COVID, but in terms of cost, that is just astronomical, isn't it? That's crazy. Yeah, um, for, team, for teams, it's, it ends up being a huge cost. You know, I, I think... Okay, things are, are relaxing a little bit now where double vaccination can get away with with a little bit less testing. Um, but certainly in the beginning of the year when I had to do 
sort of a test before I left and then a test when I was over there before I came back and then two when I came back you look at, you were looking at four to five hundred pounds um just in PCR tests on each trip and when you've got cool. a team of twenty or thirty people those costs add up very very quickly yeah yeah multiple multiple thousands of pounds it's crazy um okay in terms of the technical rules again Mick just before we sign off to go back to that just for anyone who perhaps doesn't know could you just explain to us what uh, the approved parts rule is and the concession parts and the fact, you know, is it basically then that when a manufacturer has a new part, they have to make enough available for all of the teams to be able to use that if they can afford it and if they want it. That's basically it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, in essence, that's it. Um, there is a price cap as well on all the homologation parts, which is, is pretty reasonable. Um, and it makes sense really to go down that route. Uh the reason being that the when the cylinder head and camshafts and these things are developed um, for a specific engine tune, the engine torque models for the electronics are developed around that engine tune as well. So because you have the software and the, the electronic map available from the factory team, everything in essence should pretty much work together uh, straight away. Um, and then dependent on results and where positions are, then, you know, you may be allowed for concession points where as a manufacturer, you're allowed to update, uh, one or two certain items during the course of the year, if it falls in, um, with where you are in the standings and your results. And then that allows you to make a little bit of an extra step to try and catch up. And I also wanted to ask, how on earth, because you can't change gear ratios, can you? You have to set them at the start of the year, don't you, the, the actual ratios? Yeah. So yeah. so how do you find a compromise then with that, no, not knowing what the full calendar is? Because we don't know for sure if Argentina is going to happen. It looks at the moment like it will. They're certainly going to try and get it underway with, I think, a couple of charter jets and keep all the paddock in one bubble. But we don't know if Indonesia's happening. Um, I've heard, I don't know whether you've heard Mick, but I've heard there could be a couple of rounds in Portimao if Argentina doesn't happen. They could do a back-to-back at Portimao. How do you plan the season and your gearing and your engine allocation and things like that when you actually don't know the full number of rounds or even, in some cases, where the rounds are going to be happening? Yeah, it's, it is a bit of a bit of a nightmare. I mean, obviously, the Kawasaki and its current guys has been around for quite a while now um so over the years you understand which circuits you go to and kind of developed a gearbox around that and around the latest engine tune which has been similar for us for since certainly 2019 um with the engine specification change that we tested over winter we worked out a different gearbox um configuration for the extra rpm um and a lot of it's kind of calculated and simulating things on data to where we think it's kind of a best guess estimate really um and that's all you can do it's certainly a compromise in some circuits especially for for us having such a low rpm level we're only 14.6 with the kawasaki and it's the lowest of everybody now so it can be a real big compromise in in some circuits um and we are always trying to find a little bit extra here and there. And maybe, 
you know, a tyre that comes allows us to carry a little bit more corner speed. So then we end up changing the overall ratio and we can find kind of different solutions. But yeah, it's always where you're just trying to pinch a tenth here and there and one or two kilometres an hour difference. But uh, it's not easy. A lot of computer simulations, a lot of work and, and just trying to make that best guess really um, before you commit at the beginning of the season. <laughs> so I guess it's where experience comes to the fore as well in some ways and making the right predictions. But is there an argument, Mick, final question, um, to say that it's quite difficult in some ways to be a a private team, one of the independent teams, with a Kawasaki because you are in some ways penalised because Jonathan Ray is so successful and he's the runaway rider or at least has been the last few years. Does it not make it even more difficult for the private teams because those RPM limits... After rounds three, six, and nine, you can have an increase, can't you, or a decrease? But it goes by manufacturer and not by team, so it almost guarantees that you're never going to get the increase, doesn't it? Because of Jonathan Ray's success. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. It's sort of a double-edged sword, you know. It's so good to see yeah. Johnny competitive and at the front, um, but obviously, then to stop Johnny or any rider becoming a a runaway sort of dominant rider you don't as a manufacturer get those upgrades but yeah for a privateer team it it would definitely help just even close the gap from the the independent teams behind um just help to close that gap a little bit closer and with the rpm with the kawasaki to be honest there's no horsepower advantage i think you know you're looking at one or two horsepower there was nothing really different it just allowed us to get that um, compromise on on the gearbox a little bit easier, where we could over rev in between uh, one or two corners, and it, yeah, maybe save a gear shift here and there. But yeah, it um, it just changed things around a bit for us, really. Uh, obviously, when you've got a little bit more top RPM available it means you can gear the bike a little bit shorter so you've got more acceleration off a turn and um <clears throat> but yeah it's uh it'd be nice to have and I think maybe it's something that they do look at in the future where they allow or they have a slightly different banding for independent teams compared to um the full factory teams but you also have to be be a little bit careful as well because when you have an independent team that's running a full factory bike it it becomes a a bit different well that's the problem isn't it i suppose in scott smart's defense how do you define how independent an independent team bike is you know is garrett Gerloff on the same bike as as top rack is lucas on the same bike as jonathan ray is Chas davis on the same bike as scott redding it's difficult to to know isn't it from the outside yeah, yeah, and certainly, you know, my experience in the past, I had that last year with Loris. Um, our specification, what we had, was a little bit different to what to what Garrett and the factory team had. Um, you know, Kawasaki's pretty close, um, but yeah, independent teams are always. It's not just the bike specification, the independent teams. Uh, resources wise and and staff wise and and everything else can can be a little bit restricted so uh it's something that could definitely help close that gap um but 
yeah, I certainly wouldn't want Scott's job in trying to manage all this. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how they cope with the Super Sport rules next year as well when all that changes. We'll be back with Mick in a moment. Many thanks to Mick Shanley for his insight on Full Throttle this week. Just a reminder that you can subscribe to the podcast on your favourite podcast supplier. And don't forget also that the first live action on Eurosport television and on the Eurosport app will be coming your way 9.25 on Friday morning UK time on Eurosport 2 and the Eurosport app. And that's free practice one for World Superbikes. But we've heard from a World Superbike person. Let's get a view now from a British Superbike man. And not just any British Superbike man. It's the current championship leader. I caught up with Jason O'Halloran ahead of Snetterton this weekend. So Jason, just before we started recording this, you were just telling me that it's been, what, nearly three years since you've been back to Australia. It's still not normal, this, is it? Yeah, it's been um, it's been a long, old time since I've been back to Australia. And um, the end of 2018, after the 2018 season, we went back for, for the summer. Uh, and then, yeah, we've not been back since. Um, end of 19, that all the bushfires and, um, and we had a few family things over here with Rachel. And then, um, and then yeah, the, the COVID situation, um, the COVID situation come last year. So, it's been a long time since I've been back and yeah, really looking forward to getting back if we can at the end of this year or at latest, hopefully the start of next year. Yeah, really strange situation, isn't it? But in BSB, at least on the track, it couldn't be much better for you, could it? I mean, BSB, let's be honest, is not designed to be dominated like this. You're 119 points ahead of Christian Eden and your teammate Tara McKenzie, who are tied for second. But let's just repeat that. 119 points. Are you surprised by the lead? <laughs> yeah, it's... Um... To, to be honest, it's uh, it's it's a it's a tough one because it's when I look at the point system like that, I think you know we're nearly we're six points away from being five races clear. You know we should be we should be enjoying it and yeah. uh, and cruising to the finish line. But uh, you know it sort of all starts again in a few rounds' time. Um, so we just have to keep focused and keep doing our thing. And you know at the end of the day, we've we've built up that points lead from uh, being consistent and consistently winning races. So. Uh, as long as I continue with that form, then you know that sh- the showdown shouldn't change anything from that side of things. You know, it's um, at the end of the day, some people will get rejuvenated. They'll think, oh, we've got a chance again, and they'll they'll come back strong. But for me, it's just the same thing. You know, we've got to keep doing the same job every weekend. And if we do that, then you know you'll be champion at the end of it. Yeah, we're just looking at those podium points now. For example, let's just say Peter Hickman's on sixteen, you're on fifty six. So effectively. He's only 40 points behind you, isn't he? As opposed to the 137, uh, well, it's more 142 and um, uh, Bridewell's 137 behind. So actually, yeah, Bridewell's 40 behind, Hickman's 41 behind. So it's actually a lot closer than it looks on paper, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, um, uh, you know, it's, you have to look at the podium points because that's the only, that's the only points table that really matters. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, it brings everyone, you know, after, after a long, hard season of work, it brings everyone back into the game. And, um, you know, we have to be ready for that uh, for the last three rounds because, like I said, when, you know, if someone's 150 points behind you, they they feel a bit deflated and they're a bit out of it. Whereas when you give them all their points back, um, it'll be like the start of the season again. So, you know, the first the first couple of races of the showdown, I'm sure, are going to be really tough. Um, and, uh, you know, we're going we're gonna to have to be on top of our game to make sure we can... Um, yeah, we can we can perform and, and be at the top. 
Yeah, and of course, the showdown came in following a year of dominance for Leon Kamiya on a Yamaha as well in 2009. So this justifies in many ways, doesn't it, why BSB brought the showdown in. Are you a fan of the showdown, Jace? Of course, we didn't have it last year, did we, because of the shortened season. <laughs> Different look to the showdown yeah. this year. Eight riders instead of six. Top eight all given yep. 1,000 points plus those podium points. So five for a win, three for second, one for third. I guess you're not a fan of it, are you, this year, bearing in mind your lead gets destroyed? <laughs> Yeah, it's a yeah, definitely not a fan of it this year. Um, <laughs> it's a you know, it's it's a it's a hard one because um, you know I understand that the you know they they're doing it to keep it exciting for the end of the year and you know keep the fans coming to the racetrack. Uh, but at the same time, for us as racers, you know this is our job and there's a lot you know uh, to get to the nitty gritty of it. There's a lot of money on the line between first, second, third. You know, it's, mm. it changes a lot in the championship. Yeah. So. It's um it's a very high pressure situation and it, it's um it's a you know it's a a difficult thing to think about when you look at the how far ahead you are on normal points and you think that you've done a good job and then it starts again. So, but we all know what it is when we sign up for it. We all know the the crack has been around for a long time now. Um, you know personally, I looked at the championship last year in 2020 and I thought it was some of the best racing we'd ever had, and we went to the last round with five people that could still win it. So. You know, it's. Um, I, I don't think it's needed anymore. You know, you, you look at it this year, and you could probably say yes, it is needed. But from my point, I wish. You know, I wish it wasn't there. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a sort of. I'd say fifty-fifty split, isn't it, on those who like it and those who don't. Whether you talk to fans or or people in the paddock itself, but it is what it is, I suppose. Um, and like we say, at the moment, you're what thirty-three points. It would be ahead of Christian Iden. People are saying though, Jace. And in many ways, unfairly, where the hell has Jason O'Halloran come from? But it's easy to forget in some ways that you were already runner-up to Josh Brooks last year in the weird COVID hit season. Do you feel different, though, in, in some ways now? I remember we chatted in detail, didn't we, back in 2019 when you had the crash pre-season. I think this has been coming for quite a while, hasn't it? You knew you could do it, and now it's just all gone according to plan this year. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like at the end of the day, the the results from this year are rolling on from last year. You yeah. know, we had a, had a really strong year last year in 2020, built some really strong, solid foundations. Um, you know, and people, you know, it's 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 really difficult when you're not on the inside of it to know all the ins and outs of it. But the start of last year, I had a bit of a difficult time in pre-season testing. Uh, it didn't go really how we wanted it to. Um, there was a lot of change within my side of the team last year. Um, and then just before we went racing, that all got settled. So it was really late in the day last year where that all came together. So with the people that I'm working with now, it was I only had a day or two last year before the start of the season. So we worked together last year. We carried that on to this year with all the same people. And it's just, you know, we had a great preseason. We did our work. We did long runs. We tested what we wanted to test. And then, you know, the end result is what you see now. So it's, um, you know, it's been common for a little while Last year, I won races again, which was a big thing. You know, we won three races last year at 11 podiums out of 18 races. So it was a really, really strong season for us. Um, and then, yeah, we've just carried that on to this year. So it's, um, you know, riding the same bike, working with the same team, working with the same people. It, there's a lot to be said for that. And, um, you know, it's uh, it's all paying off now. I don't really think there's anyone, you know, anything that can really be criticised in your season. Is there, but is there anything from your point of view that you've not been happy with or... Any area you think you could have improved in looking back because the results are very, very consistent. Yeah, to, to be honest, there's a few, there's a few little, you know, little ones that are only critiquing myself. You know, like I crashed at Knock Hill um, out of race two, I think it was. I was in sixth, uh, sixth place, but I'd started on row four. Um, 
really, really tricky pace to pass. I just got through the group that I was with. I could see the front group, and I just tucked the front at turn three. So that that's um, that was probably my own mistake, and being a little bit too gun ho ready to get to the front. Um, uh, another mistake I made was that uh, Brian Hatch crashed on the first lap of qualifying. Um, had to start 18th, and I got back to fifth uh, in the first race. So that potentially could have been a really strong result for us. Um, and other than that, you know, it's all been pretty good. We've either been winning or we've been on the podium, which is, you know, like you look at how many podiums I've had, how many wins I've had. You know, if you want to be champion, that's what you have to do. You have to win the most races and have the most podiums. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's been a strong season for us. I feel comfortable on the bike. I feel comfortable within myself. I know what I have to do. And I think one of the biggest things with, with bike racing is you have to figure out how to win. And once you figure out how to win, uh, you're away and you know I, I seem to be I seem to be doing that quite well at the moment and it's not e- it's easy to talk about winning it's not very easy to win and um, you know it's the it's the fine details that make that happen and you know they're the they're the bits that we're getting on top of at the moment you have made it look easy as well haven't you Jace I know it's not but I mean just looking at the stats we've had 18 races you've won nine a further five podiums so what's that 14 you've only missed the podium in four races I mean let's be honest BSB is not designed for that to happen. It's pretty impressive. Yeah, I think I think the um, the best thing about that this year is that um, you know BSB we race at so many different uh, circuits. We so many they've all got a different character to them. Some are fast and flowing. Some are stop start. Some are you know up and down, and they're so different. There's nothing that's the same. So to be able to be that consistent on all them different tracks, it means we're doing something right. Um, it means the bike's working really well. It means I can do my thing, um, you know, and it's a it's a package at the minute which which we can win on, which is fantastic. But you know, it's a it's a difficult, really really difficult thing to do in BSB, um, and you always have different people that have their their really strong tracks because it suits their style or it suits their bike. So to be able to be constantly one of them guys in the top three every single weekend, no matter where we go, that's um that's a quite rewarding thing for us at the moment. And uh, yeah, like I say, we're doing we're doing something right. And of course, going into Snetterton now this weekend and then Silverstone, I guess Silverstone, you and Taz are particularly confident, aren't you? Because we know how well the R1 goes around there. Um, But there's going to be a great contest, isn't there? People like Glenn Irwin, Lee Jackson, they're desperately trying to hold on to their top eight places. Brad Ray, Ryan Vickers, Skinner, people like that. Josh Brooks as well, of course. That shouldn't go unnoticed. Fighting to get through. How do you approach these races now? Because for you, a fourth position is almost, I'm not going to say useless, but... You need podium points, don't you? You know you're in the showdown, so it's those top threes that matter. Yeah, absolutely. Like I think, um, you know, we've got Snetterton next, which um, uh, is probably going to be a, a little bit of a harder round for us. Um, you know, the Ducatis go really well there. The Hondas go well there with the two big long straights. Um, so, you know, we're going to have to be on our A game this weekend if we want to be on the podium. Um, but Silverstone, you know, the last round before the showdown, we know how well the Yamaha works there. Um, both myself and Taz are strong there. Um, so looking forward to, to that round and you know it's it's a it's a tricky one at the moment we just have to assess as we go but you know I definitely need to be on the podium to be scoring and podium points but we also need to make sure that we're we're physically um, uh, ready for the showdown you know so we don't need to be doing anything anything silly either so it's um you know it's take it as it comes and and uh, you know attack the situations when they're thrown at us but the next, the next two rounds for sure are going to be a bit aggro. You know, like you say, there's a lot of people trying to still make that top eight. Um, so they've all got, they've all got a lot to gain and, and not a lot to lose. Um, and uh, you know, we just have to keep doing our thing and 
you know, if we can if we can do our thing right, I'm sure we can win some more races before the showdown starts and then, um, you know, get ready for the business end of the year, really. Is there any conversations being had within your team? Because obviously yourself and Taz as a team are highest up in the championship. Is it just, you know, go for it race by race? Is there any championship chat, as it were, in that team? Yeah, just go for it race by race. And, um, you know, we, we're both, um, you know, we're both within within a shout of it. And, um, you know, we just have to, have to race for ourselves, you know, and, um, it's uh, you know the, the last three rounds. Obviously, will I'm sure it'll be assessed as we go on, and you know I'm sure Taz is, is going to be one of my main um, uh, championship rivals. So you know we'll be we'll be racing hard against each other, and um, you know hopefully um, hopefully we can do a really good job for the team. And you know ideally we finish first and second in the championship would be be amazing for McCamshire, you know. So um, yeah, we'll just have to see how it pans out and do the best job we can, and hopefully. Um, Hopefully, where the guy at the end with the with the championship trophy. Jason, I've got to ask because it's a strange situation this year. We've all been trying to get our heads around it. What have you made of the situation with Josh Brooks and the fact it has been a bit of a struggle? It's it's getting better now, isn't it? But it's been strange to see a reigning champion struggling as he has this year, hasn't it? Yeah, like um, you know, I don't think anyone expected it. Uh, no. You know, if you look at the if you look at the preseason um, uh, videos, everyone tipped Josh to be the you know the strongest guy in the championship, as as you yeah. would be in the reigning champion. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, and you look at his time in BSB the last 10 years, he's never had a season like he's having now. You know, he's always been one of the top uh, top championship contenders. Um, but, you know, motorbike racing changes. And if you get something that's not quite right or you're not quite happy with uh, in the championship they're in, with it being so competitive, um, you know, it, you, you slip backwards and you keep slipping backwards. So, it's a, you know, I, I, I personally uh, hope that he, he gets back up the front and um, you know challenging for wins and podiums because for me uh, to win a championship I want to win it against the absolute best guys there and him being the reigning champion I want to I want to beat him when he's at his best so um, you know I, I hope he gets it together the next few rounds makes the showdown and then we can have a good good fight for it at the end but you know I don't I'd, I've not spoken to him so I don't know what the what the issues have been or you, you only hear things through the paddock but um, yeah hopefully they get on top of it and um, yeah back back being competitive soon yeah it's amazing isn't it there's still so many opinions about what could should have has happened there or whatever but I uh, suppose only Josh and the team know for sure but um, Jace just uh, to conclude how much would it mean to you to win this championship this year we know you're certainly deserving of it you certainly are more than capable of doing it as we've seen so far but what would that mean to you? Yeah, it'd be be everything. It would be a a small justification for the many years of um, of hard work and and sacrifice. You know, moving over here from Australia and especially these last couple of years, we've not been able to get home and um, you know missing out on a lot of family family time mm. back there. Obviously, been through uh, many things in in the BSB career with coming back from injuries and all that sort of stuff. So you know, to win a championship would be sort of just a bit of um a, a small bit of reward for all the all the hard years of work so um you know it's um it's something that um I've wanted to do for a very long time British champions being the top of my list of of um you know that's been my main target my main goal and um if we can achieve that that'll be that'll be a really satisfying thing at the end of the year well Jace, good luck with Snetterton this weekend I'm sure we'll speak again towards the end of the season but good luck with it and uh, yeah go for those podium points cheers guys thanks very much Thanks very much to Jason again for that one. Podium points, podium points, podium points then is the name of the day. You've got to be in that top three to score podium points. Remember, the showdown this year is eight riders, as we said. 
They'll all be given 1,000 points, but we have two more rounds before then. Snetterton this weekend and then Silverstone on the national circuit there. And the podium points are accrued in terms of five for a race win, three for second and one for third. So when they get to the showdown, they'll all be given that top eight, 1,000 points plus the penalty points they have managed so far. So it is by no means one yet for Jason O'Halloran. Okay, good luck to Jace and the other BSB riders at Snetterton this weekend. All of the live coverage here on Eurosport. But now let's get back to Mick Shanley to talk about Magna Core World Superbikes and some more of those technical aspects that have made the championship so close this year. This is the final thing now, Mick, I promise. Magna Core. Um, it's a great Jonathan Ray track. He's had, I think it's his fourth best track in terms of wins, but Toprak had some brilliant races there in the past with those two first wins he had. Uh, it's his favourite track. Ducati won the last race, though, there with Scott Redding last year. So I really don't know who we should be putting our money on for Magnicol. Who should it lend itself towards? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, Magnicol is... I really enjoy it, to be honest. Yeah, but me you, too, actually. Yeah, you never know what you're going to get. Um, the weather can be... Yeah, typically British. I think last year every session was wet. Um, but yeah, I mean, you could be there and it could be sort of 30 degrees sunshine or 30 degrees sunshine one day and then rain the next. It's it's such a mixed bag. Um, the surface now is pretty good. Um, it was grippy in the wet. Uh, before it was used to be a real ice rink. Um yeah, it's, circuit's got quite a lot of character, and if you like the track, you can go fast there, and you see that with some riders. Um, so yeah, hopefully we can press some Lucas Mahias home advantage and, and get some strong results there. Yeah, because he's going well, isn't he? And I think Lucas sometimes is a a confusing character from the outside in the sense that people think he's a very hard-nosed Frenchman, and he is on the track, but... He's a big, uh, he's a big teddy bear, isn't he, Lucas? He's one of the nicest guys in the paddock, I'd say. <laughs> yeah, no, he's a great guy. He's a great guy. He's, uh, he just wants wants to be good so much. He puts so much pressure on himself. Um, yeah, he gets yeah. that French passion in there, and just need to try and control and steer it a little bit at times. Um, but I, I really enjoy working with him. He, he's a real talent. Um, and I think once he just figures out one or two small things um, with the bike and his riding, then he'll he'll make a, a good step forward again. But yeah, potential's definitely there. Yeah, exciting. Who knows what he might be able to do, especially if the weather's mixed. But even if it's not, I think it could be a, a decent weekend. And of course, with Mick Shanley back in the garage, you're going to be on the podium in all three races, surely? <laughs> It'd be nice. I'm just sat. Uh, in my office doing my uh, final preparation things before I get ready to fly out tomorrow so yeah looking forward to it Mick thanks very much good luck with all your COVID testing and flights and travel locator forms and all the rest of the hassle we're having to go through at the moment and uh, have a good Magnicore weekend yeah no trouble thanks Greg Thanks very much indeed then to Mick Shanley and Jason O'Halloran before him don't forget we will be live for free practice one, 25 past nine, James Tozend and myself, Magnicor, this weekend. And that's uh, Friday, 25 past nine in the morning. However, James was also busy last weekend. He was at Silverstone. 
with ITV broadcasting on the British MotoGP. Pretty interesting race weekend. Let's get JT's thoughts. James, you were there. You were on the ground. You were broadcasting. You were doing your punditry. What did you make of Silverstone 2021? Hey, Greg. Uh, yeah, I was at Silverstone. It was a great weekend, actually. Just uh, just actually just broadcasting on the main event, uh, the Premier Class with MotoGP. And it was a bit of a one-horse race, unfortunately, for for the viewers. Uh, but it was uh, definitely uh, an exhibition for uh, for Fabio Quartararo. He was just fabulous um, the whole weekend. Obviously qualifying uh, on pole position, um, fastest lap. Uh, I think he was he was something like over 10 seconds quicker than uh, the 2019 race time. So the pace was unbelievable. I think his uh, his extended his lead to 65 points in the lead, and you'd have to say that that's one hand on the trophy for for the young Frenchman. He's been outstanding, hasn't he, since he joined the factory team? It was uh, it was lovely to see Alicia Espargaro uh, having his very first podium on the Aprilia since it was 21 years ago since Aprilia was on the podium. Uh, with uh, Jeremy Williams, <laughs> and that, in fact, it was Valentino Rossi's maiden victory in the 500 class at Donington, and I think uh, Kenny Roberts Jr. was second. So I'm I'm going back, so I'm trying to get my memory into gear. But um, incredible how long it's been for Aprilia to to get their um, their podium. So uh, much deserves that they've really come on strong haven't they, this year. And Alex Rins uh, back to form. He's had a shocking time of it really with. Uh, with his own uh, mistakes, really, with with crashing quite a lot. I think a lot of it is trying to keep up with his uh, young uh, world champion teammate, um, who was has been outstanding again on the Suzuki, especially in race format. Um, me had a problem with his tyres delaminating after nine laps. I saw his chief engineer Frankie Carcetti uh, in the paddock, and they'd done race distance on on the tyres on that set of tyres over the weekend, and it was fine. And he looked so strong at the beginning of the race, but unfortunately, after nine laps, they both delaminated front and rear. I think Pekka Baniaia had the similar problem. Uh, so that was even better for Fabio Quartararo. Uh, second, well, they were joint second, I think, weren't they? Miriam uh, Baniaia going into that weekend. And for both of them to finish, you know, nearly, I think Baniaia was outside the points and Mir was down 14th or something. So it was um, it was a dream. All the stars aligned for Fabio. So, But uh, yeah, as always, the British fans were amazing. Uh, they gave Valentino Rossi an amazing send-off for his, his, his last race. In the UK, uh, they should have been very proud of themselves, and I'm sure Valentino Rossi felt every bit of love uh, for him. 25-year uh, career, and it was it was nice to be there to see it because I was at Donington in 2000 when I saw that victory for him, and I was there for his last one. So, very very proud of Valentino. Many many thanks, obviously, from everybody in the industry of how much he's done for racing, and uh, look forward to uh, being back in the seat with you this Friday for uh, Magni Core. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Brings back many, many fond memories for me, obviously, winning both my two world championships there. Uh, so looking forward to seeing you this weekend, mate. And uh, yeah, see you Thursday evening, possibly. Ta-da. Well, there you go, James Tosland. 16-time World Superbike winner, 61-time World Superbike podium finisher, two-time world champion and top reporter as well. Thank you very much, JT. We will be live then, 25 past nine in the morning, UK time, Eurosport 2 and the Eurosport app. Many thanks from myself, Greg Haynes. We'll be looking forward to World Superbikes. We've got MagniCore for the Worlds and we've got Snetterton for BSB and every single one of the support races from Snetterton will be live and exclusive on the Eurosport app or you can follow our continued coverage, of course, on the main channel itself. 
Right, we'll see you over the race weekend. It's getting pretty crucial now then in the Superbike Championships. What's going to happen? Jason O'Halloran looking for podium points. The likes of Josh Brooks, the reigning champion, looking to get into the showdown. Who would have thought we'd be saying that? That's going to be a very hard-fought contest as well with just two rounds to go before the showdown, starting with Snetterton this weekend. And in World Superbikes, a very busy time coming up. We've got Magnicor this weekend. Then they've got a weekend off when BSB goes straight to Silverstone. So they're back-to-back. -back, and then three in a row for World Superbikes. There's a lot of racing now coming up before the end of this season. Championships to be won and lost on Eurosport. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I'll be back from the commentary box next week. I'll be recording that one with James Tozen as we go off air on Sunday. But for now, thanks for listening to Full Throttle. Please subscribe if you can. Thanks for your support so far across the season. And we'll chat with you from Free Practice 1, MagniCore 9.25 on Friday. We'll see you then. 